We've talked philosophers and spiritualists, writers and psychiatrists. But for this last episode, I'm going to talk about children's books. My third child was born nearly 18 years after the first two, and I've noticed such a shift in the topics that kids' books these days cover. Everything from race to the environment, they are really, truly planting the seeds of future thoughtfulness and tolerance in our kids. But one of my favourites is Dr Zeus's The Lorics, which tells the story of what happens to the planet and people when profit at all cost is the only motivation. When the Wantzler moves in and starts cutting down the truffler trees, the Lorax warns there's going to be trouble. But the Wantzler doesn't listen. They invite their family to come and join them. And the truffler trees are a money-making machine. And bit by bit, the whole ecosystem dependent on these trees is destroyed as they're cut down. First, the barbaloots leave. Then the swami swans and the hummingfish. All the colour and joy is destroyed until a charred, lifeless landscape is left behind. Then the Wantzler's family leave when the money dries up. And finally, so does the Lorax. And so the Wantzler is left alone until the day a boy comes to hear their story. And at the end of it, the Wantzler says, they finally realised what it all means. And he says to the boy, unless someone like you cares a whole awful lot. Nothing is going to get better. It's not. During this series, we've examined what the kindness economy is and how businesses are bringing it to life. What impact do they want their business to have? What values do they hold dear? And what all of them have talked about is what matters to them, what they care about, And that is what it really comes down to for all of us, caring. Whether that's within the businesses we build or the businesses we buy from, nothing is really going to get better until all of us care a whole awful lot. At the end of the Lorax, just as all seems lost, the Wunzler throws the boy the last seed of the truffler tree and tells him to plant it. The book ends with a message of hope for the future, and I believe in hope too. Firstly, because there are so many inspiring people out there on this journey. Just like the Wantzler, more and more and more of us are seeing the error of our ways. And secondly, because the values we teach our children now will bear fruit in the future. It's in the books we read them, the conversations we have with them. If we teach our kids to care a whole awful lot, We'll all care enough pretty soon to bring the kindness economy fully to life. I'm Mary Portis and this is The Kindness Economy. The Kindness Economy podcast is supported by BT and its Small Business Support Scheme.
Hello, Corinza. Hi, Mary. Yes, so we've been really listening to what businesses need. And we know from our research that that two thirds of small businesses want more help with marketing. So we've been working really hard to develop some digital marketing tools to help. So we're going to be releasing that later on in the year. I'm really, really excited about this. So so you've got to you've got to kind of keep an eye out because it's going to really help loads of small businesses. Corinne's is excited. You should be excited, too. And to find out more, just don't forget, you can go to bt.com forward slash small business support. Thanks, Corenza. It's the last in this series, the final one in the kindness economy. It won't stop here, of course, but I just need a breather. But what's been so fantastic about this, what I've loved so much and all of us is hearing from you and the, the light that it's given, knowing that we're doing something that actually benefits humanity and our planet and actually makes us better people and business people in doing so. Later on, I'm going to be talking to Michael Green, who's the chief executive of the Social Progress Index, a great man. And he will talk about how he's putting the stuff that we talk about in the kindness economy into big businesses that can affect change globally. But first, I've got my homies on with me. The two women who have sat by me, not sat by me actually physically, but you know, metaphorically, emotionally, spiritually, creatively, and thinking about how we take this into the future. My chief executive, Kareen, and my chief strategy officer, Lily. Hello, girls. Hello. <laughs> not awkward at all. No, <laughs> no, no, they're never awkward. See, I don't normally put them in front of the camera. You're not in front of the camera, but today you are because we've had so many incredible, you know, feedback from people asking, yeah, asking, asking. It's been fantastic, hasn't it? It has, it has. You know, we actually, I mean, we put out a newsletter um, every couple of weeks and we honestly started it with a, we need to, collate this in a way that's almost our own therapy um by just by just writing it trying to make sense of it and putting it out into the world to see actually whether people were also thinking feeling the same and I think there's a power in storytelling there's a power in sharing and we believe in the power of example and I think that that's what we felt we felt the sort of response is just furthering all of that and it's humanized it it's made Mm. it real it's made it Mm. possible I know, and we we got to that place, I remember so quickly, of this is about vision, a true vision, but yeah. it's also about action. And, and putting it into it. And, and Lily, you were, one of the things that kept on coming back to us, and which was really difficult, I remember this in the beginning, where we were, particularly in the fashion industry, there was the elephant in the room that everyone kept on saying, this is cheap, cheap is value. And, and sorry, we are democratic businesses that this is the value that people want. You can't take that away from them. And in order to get that value, we know, we know that we're going to have to manufacture and create in a way that doesn't help this planet and doesn't help people. But sorry, that's what people want. And we got to a really great place on that. To talk about value and how we... Because I think this actually is the thing that keeps coming up time and time and time again. Yeah, and it's louder than ever. I think all the conversations we're having at the moment... So we've got this expression, the double V, uh, value with values. And, you know, to Corinne's point, I suppose a year ago, uh, it all sort of sounded a bit woo-woo, really. It's the hippies in the boardroom talking, yeah, man, like, you know, just embrace these values and, and actually, 
really, you know, you're confronted with a hard-nosed business person going, look, cheap will always win. Uh, It's about price, uh, maybe a bit of quality, but nothing much more. And now uh, the conversations, gosh, they've shifted so fundamentally. You've got uh, big businesses, small businesses too, recognising that actually it's not just about uh, price and quality and convenience. What people really want is that added uh, extra you have to embrace uh, whether it's sustainability or community values or just demonstrating that you're driving social progress in some way or another that's the new value equation customers are expecting more they're wanting more and they're quite willing actually to pay more so this idea of a great deal or a good deal without doing good is fast becoming a bit of an issue so the double v is actually it's a shorthand to a a different way of uh, both serving your customers giving them a great deal but also driving that social progress piece it's really interesting Karine and I have had quite a few conversations uh, over the last uh, few months with clients going look you know last year it was all about the we and it was all about altruism and you know we were sort of being really really uh, sort of a good business but now it's all it's, it's a pendulum swing is right back to the me and we have to give you know our, our individual customers a good deal you know and our answer is always it, it's got to be both you've got to be able to demonstrate to consumers that you are giving them a great deal or giving them stuff that they want but that's no longer enough you also have to cater to their desire their appetite for businesses that behave better who add a back who bring something more and it's got to be baked into every decision that's being made i'm going to take us back a bit i mean you kareen uh, you remember this call when we first heard about covid and and, and i write about this we're, we're writing a book together and we, we write about how this hit us and shocked the knickers of us completely it was a shock mm. and actually we were the ones that were sitting there at the time talking about the change that was coming and how businesses needed to emerge and evolve um you had been in december 2019 on the ted talk platform mm. talking to that and trying to encourage people to join us on that mission so we were already thinking about that Yet still, when it hit in March, it was a huge shock. Do you remember you and I talking about it? Because it was like, shall we do this? We were like, oh, my God, this is what we've believed in. But is is that immediately going to save us and keep the money coming in? There was a survival mode that we kicked into. But we was also going, actually, like, we, we actually do believe that there is a better way to do business, to think about business. And we want to work our business through in that way, but also work with our clients to help them. You know, previous to that, we were having to create jeopardy. We were saying, look, change is coming, don't be left behind. Suddenly, COVID took the need to highlight the jeopardy away. It was there in front of us and everyone was impacted. Everyone needed to rethink. Everyone needed to reimagine. There was no stone left unturned in that way. But also doing that for ourselves as well yeah. at the same time. I remember there was a brilliant line in a book. I can't remember which one it was. It was, it was a transformative something or other. We've been reading so much of this, all of us together. Lils, you'll remember this as well. But, and I've really felt this summed up how we have had to do our business to survive and how we've had to help big businesses as well as small take this way and one is on one hand we're like hospice workers there's a dying old way of doing it but you still don't want it to die just yet in fact you don't want it to die completely you want to keep parts of it and the other is the role of the midwife on the rebirth of what we are bringing in and I just think it's been just those two completely polar opposites is what we've had to work with. Karina and I had a a brilliant discussion with a a client the other day who was saying you know 
I, I've had to tell my team, stop saying when we get back to normal, we're going forward into normal. And she's frustrated, actually, because, uh, and you, you know, I get it emotionally. Of course, everyone wants to get back to normal. It's been a really, really tough year. But equally, we've got to take advantage of this flux of this, you know, the, what we call plastic hours, right? That, you know, take advantage of all this discomfort. Explain the plastic hours if people don't know what it is. Um, well, plastic hours is really a way of describing a period of time that is... Uh, malleable and it feels chaotic it feels deeply uncomfortable um, but it's your opportunity to before things set to a degree of normality is um, taking advantage of that malleability and actually shaping it in the way you believe is right mm. so it is quite a philosophical uh, concept but it it's ev- every time we talk to people about this it's it, it makes perfect sense because they recognize that there is all this flux no one really knows what's next and it's up to us to sort of I guess feel empowered mm. to sort of shape it in the way we we believe is best so yeah we love that expression plastic hours i think we should also recognize that we are still at the moment you know the uk is still shuttered Mm. (laughs) we are still in lockdown and i think that we're i think there's an expectation that we can and should have all the answers now and i think that you know i think we're looking ahead we're understanding what we've learned from this year and so should should be making the most of actually this dynamic where change is everywhere and actually the expectations of change is huge um, where I think we've been very adverse to that for many years. Um, but at the moment, like, our economy is still shuttered and our high streets are still shut and our businesses are still only op- being able to operate in very restricted ways. So I think this is this discomfort that we are feeling at the moment, unfortunately, you know, is, is sort of not going away anytime soon, but actually just imagining actually a better way of doing business that can emerge from this. It's interesting because I'm digressing slightly, but I was outside the school gates this morning. Yippee, at long last. <laughs> I'm and, with you there. <laughs> and, um, and I was speaking to a very well-known chef who, who, who's redoing his business. And we were both talking about actually that control and that three-year plan. Yes, actually, it's more a philosophy and a way of being, but that actual financial three-year plan we're finding is more about daily and monthly because change it's no longer a security that we are going to build and we can do it this way because normal's gone but I was just thinking Lily on this the question that always comes back in because we put the questions out to everybody and some people have been doing such brilliant things and writing into us and telling us how they've been putting the kind of economy into their businesses and I love you all I'd love it if we had three days to go through them all we haven't but particularly when I've seen small businesses do this and also the big businesses who are trying to change their shape the question that always comes back how do we get started? How do we turn this theory into a tangible and realistic action? Is it top down? Is it bottom up? Is it inside out? Is it inside in? Is it small acts that cascade? Is it seismic transformation? Is it a plan that's going to take 25 years? Do we have to wait? Will we ever see the tree grow? You know, and I think, what, 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 what's your answer on that? Lils, do you want to give us an insight on what you think, what we've, well, what we've been telling clients? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I suppose the, the first thing to say is there's not some sort of magic formula that we can apply to everyone. And I know that's a slightly frustrating answer, but it's it's the truth. And I, and I think it's uh, in large part why a lot of people back off from this in a way. They go sort of imagine that there's this sort of really intense regimental plan that you need to follow. Um, and that's why they just don't go anywhere near it because it all feels so theoretical it all feels so difficult whereas actually what we're hearing from all of these examples is just 
give it a go. Start somewhere. And then once you get going, that momentum just, um, you can't stop it. I mean, there's the first thing that all businesses should do, I suppose, was just sign yourselves up to those best in class standards, be part of B Corp, raise the floor, um, you know, do all of that stuff. Um, that's fast going to become hygiene. It sort of makes you feel quite progressive today. But, you know, in a year's time, that's the sort of thing we'll just frankly expect. So then the question is, OK, well, how do I go above and beyond that and really behave in a really additive way? If I want to be part of the kindness economy, I've got to figure out what my business is for and why people want me around. Like, what do I add? And so that's where it gets a little bit tricky. Like, OK, well, how do I go about doing that? And I suppose our approach is really partnering with people uh, and and just get, just staying really realistic you know a lot there's a misconception that you have to do it perfectly or not at all and that's a real issue because it stops people embracing this uh, in in any way um so i suppose our our first port of call is how can we partner with you on identifying those areas of the business that you can definitely uh, sort of improve it might be tiny it might be something you're starting you know a small kink in the supply chain it might be something you do with your people it might be frankly just treating your uh, your customers that bit better. It might be identifying your community. What is your philosophy? How are you going to create an environment uh, that actually generates at least behaviours that drive that that betterment? Uh, philosophy is important in that respect because it's not unlike purpose. We talk a lot about purpose. That's brilliant. I love purpose. But the problem with purpose is sort of become a bit of a marketing construct. It's sort of used quite cynically to drive short-term fame. It's something that people put on the walls of their businesses or on a slide somewhere, um, rather than a philosophy, which for us is about driving that genuine behaviour change. And what you live and breathe, I think that you mentioned there about the construct of the three-year, five-year plan. I think that actually what a philosophy gives you is a long-term direction of travel that I think people can align to and they can sign up to, they can understand what is the mission that a business and a collection of people, a collective of people are on? Actually, I think what we've we experienced more than anything and within our business and with the, you know, our clients, the actually responsive short-term understanding of how to, you know, meet immediate needs. I think you had an awesome conversation with Mark Constantine where you spoke to about, uh, about actually where does that come from? You know, where does that sort of collective mission come from? And, you know, and without a doubt, Mark Constantine has created an environment that allows people to have a shared purpose and empowerment in the decisions that they can make. That's Mark Constantine from Lush Cosmetics, in case anyone didn't listen in detail to my podcast. <laughs> what were the B Corps? What, what people have often said, oh, SMEs can't afford to sign up to that. Is that the case? No, it's actually, um, it's an annual membership, but it is um, correlated to the size of your business and your income size. So okay. therefore, the smaller pay less, the bigger pay more, um, which feels very inclusive um, but it's just a great it's a great indicator of what you should focus on in terms of throughout your business yeah very good guide okay should we do a little call out for those smes have all written in i'm sorry if i don't cover you i'm sure you'll send me something on social media with the fingers up i don't mind i don't mind that but we're going to try and do as many as we can so one each so i'm going to do the first one then kareen then lily so mary Kareen, lily so i'm Knocking off with, knocking off, that sounds a bit weird. I'm kicking off with the Travelling Spoon Brownie business. Thanks for inspiration, Mary. You've inspired us to use our waste surplus of brownies and we're going to sell these and the money's raised will go to our local special care baby unit in Newcastle. 
Corinne, you're okay. next. Shout out to Oxford Craft Studio, which is a gift in business. Um, so my little creative business handmakes unique items made from luxury salvaged and rescued materials. Love that. Linen, which is dead stock, silk from sun damaged curtains, etc., etc. Amazing. So here's one. I love this one. The Eco Stitch. Uh, so at the Eco Stitch. It's fab to see there are so many people with great businesses who care. In my little business, I make and repair. But all my makes are from repurposed or ethically produced fabrics. However, my true passion is teaching teens about waste in the fashion industry and the joy of upcycling. Having worked in fashion for 30 years, I felt it's so important to give something back. Brilliant. You didn't go down the list because you are a maverick and you went off the list. So now I'm looking up going, blimey, which one can I do? Cheeky Charlie. Okay, I'm going for... Orwell and Austin, a knitwear brand, who said, I want to put my brand forward, Mary, founded nine years ago with the core value of being ethically run and sustainable. One woman knitwear brand designed by me, working with ethically run factory for the past nine years. Yes, we can bring ethical behaviours in factories into our businesses. Clothing, fashion, as we know, is a nightmare when it comes to what it's doing for the planet. And it's something we need to really, really look at. Kareem. Oh, can I, can I do on, the next? Can I do Percy and Lily's? Because <laughs> Percy is the name of my dog, and obviously I'm Lily. So they are two vintage uh, Citroën, Citroën H vans, bringing 10 seafood menus, craft beers, cocktails, and gins to events. Uh, they tell us that their number one value has always been relationship is everything. And it's meant that their staff has always been, they've always been paid more than any living or London wage. Uh, and they're in the north. Uh, people have always come before profit, and we price our jobs accordingly to customer need if we know they don't have the proper budget uh, and we can help them then we will the kindness economy uh, that we've been part of has come back to us tenfold it pays in more ways than one to be kind we'll be listening in on the 21st what's going on on the 21st what am i doing on 21st i don't know who's, who's running my diary i don't know <laughs> honestly i literally don't know what i'm party. doing party. yeah i want to know party. what's going on the 21st um so this is actually a shout out that Tracy Johns has given us of her local village pub, The Five Bells, where she just said that they've actually done an amazing job of really hosting community response to COVID, doing live cookery demos and even painting snowdrops on windows around the village. Oh, I know my local pub, it was brilliant. It just became a deli drop-in. I used to go up with those. What are they called? They're called growlers, are they, to fill the beer up, tragically? Growlers? Uh, I think they're called that. <laughs> that sounds a bit sexual, doesn't it? <laughs> Lots of love, girls. I knew that would end up with a bit of a cheeky line at the end. See, that's how we work in our office. <laughs> Talking about each other's growlers. I, I'm going to have to look that up. My kids are going to go, you're just an embarrassment, mother. But you know what? I am. Thanks, girls. Speak later about our book. Oh, we've got to talk about because we're working on our book, Rebuild, which is coming out in the summer. And it's going to have all of these answers, she says in it thanks a lot laters now i'm talking to michael green chief executive of social progress imperative this innovative organization is working with countries cities and everything in between to accurately measure much much more than just money now it takes statistics on three key areas basic human needs so that's things like access to clean water and housing foundations of well-being think about education and environmental impact And finally, opportunity. This covers areas such as personal freedom and inclusiveness. I love this. And to measure progress in a truly expansive way. And the results are fascinating. Smaller economies like Norway and New Zealand come out on top. 
the UK is in 20th place globally and economic giant USA is at 28, by the way. Norway, New Zealand and those smaller economies run by women, just saying. Money is important, of course, but the SPI is creating a complement to this that looks at people's real quality of life and how to better invest economic resources to improve this. And it's had truly transformative potential for the businesses we create and how they will impact all of this. Let's dive into my conversation with Michael in the moment when I ask him about what does a healthy business look like? If a business isn't sustaining its community, then that community is going to wither and that's going to damage that business in the long term. So successful long-term businesses have got to be ones that are supporting their community. So we, I mean, we've done work, we do work sort of comparing countries on social progress and also on communities. The one piece of work we did was in Costa Rica, where we uh, looked at the tourism industry. And so obviously Costa Rica's got a huge tourism industry. Now what, they, what the Costa Rican government wanted to know is what type of tourism actually makes better lives for people. And obviously, when we looked at it, what we found was that different types of tourism delivered hugely different scales of benefits to the population. So if you build a big hotel on a beach um, that's largely sort of concrete and it doesn't generate very good jobs, there's actually very little social progress from that. Whereas if you're doing kind of ecotourism that allows a local farmer to rent out his horses, huge amounts of extra sort of benefit. So that way we can start making distinctions between what are the kind of businesses that are adding value to sustain healthy communities and those that aren't, or what kind of business practices are good for healthy communities, and also what kind of jobs. Because one of the other things we're finding in our data is, is that you know, just having a job isn't necessarily a big boost to social progress. It's actually the you know, low unemployment on its own doesn't guarantee good quality of life. What you need to have is the right kind of jobs. Yes, yes. So if we can actually figure out what are the right kind of jobs, the right kind of businesses, the right kind of business practices that lead to better lives, then actually we can actually help guide this conversation. I don't know if you know the late sort of Irish philosopher who was ex-priest, John O'Donoghue. I was was listening to him talking and it was a, a beautiful little moment talking about the right kind of job. And he, when he was a priest, he said, um, I used to go in to give the last rites when someone was dying in Ireland and he'd see these little pinched faces that had been in work that wasn't feeding their soul, wasn't making them feel good, but they had to, to, to bring the money in. And I always thought, what? and he said, then suddenly before their death, they would just, you know, it would, all that pressure would go away from their face. I know that sounds very sort of spiritual on a morning, but this is what we are talking about, the human spirit here, isn't it, as well? being fed with this and I think that gets back to what you know what I was saying earlier on was if we incentivize new ideas replace these good ideas which is exactly what you're saying it requires creativity doesn't it so the farmer instead of saying okay this is it would build another hotel who is it who's flourishing with these ideas and my hope is let the old school go you know let some of these old businesses go because the new will come from this next generation who have ideas of how we want to work and live in a new and better way yeah yeah and the point is, I mean, this idea about what we're trying to do is achieve human flourishing is of course a very old idea i mean it goes back to aristotle and uh, there's the word in greek eudaimonia which i think actually means the god inside coming out 
yeah, is, yeah, he talks about that's being the kind of the purpose of living. Yeah, I mean, Adam Smith is often talked about as being this sort of, you know, free market, you know, um, guru. But, you know, Adam Smith talks about the whole idea about the importance of people having dignity. He talks about the ability to have um, a good suit of clothes to appear in public without shame. So this is actually, this is part of human dignity. So I think it's actually not about trying to, uh, it's trying to rediscover those ideas and thinking about what's going to be a society, what's going to be um, an economy that allows us to have that kind of human flourishing. How do we get your SPI into as many businesses? I know you're doing it by countries. I, I, I'm trying to look at business because I think they have such huge effect, don't they, on how they behave and how we feel and all this sense of dignity and well-being and the light inside, as Aristotle said, which is your spirituality and your your energy. How are you making this happen within business, or are you do you are you slowly but surely, you know, going into every type of business with this and saying, look at this, this is the health of a business. Is that how you're doing it? I want to feel that you're on a roll here, Michael. So what we're doing with Social Progress Index is measuring geographies. Uh, so we're looking at a, a particular country or region or city or community. What's your social progress? So that's what we can do. So we've done a lot of work yeah. measuring countries. We measure 163 countries. And then we do local communities. So actually in the UK, our, uh, our flagship pilot is in Barking and Dagenham. And so there, we've actually measured social progress down to the 17 wards of the borough. And that's actually helped the borough council to target public services better. Brilliant. And as they say, this has helped prevent 200 families going into homelessness. And this has then saved the council more than £3 million. So it's saved the money and achieved better outcomes. So you've taken Dagenham. How long did you work on Dagenham? And what, 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 what thoughts and, and, and issues came up? And, and how, how did you... Manifest change. The Barking Dagenham came to us and they said, look, you know, we want to have a very data-driven strategy. We know we've got a lot of social challenges to address and we know we've got to make every pound work harder in the age of austerity. So we want to use SBI as a way of helping us as a strategic tool. So we work with them to develop their own local index and then they've integrated that data into what they call their borough data platform. And now it's being used by different policy teams, whether it's targeting assistance for fuel poverty, interventions on domestic violence, incorporating it into their procurement processes. They've used it in a whole host of ways to actually then influence how the council is operating so that they can achieve better outcomes and also save themselves money. And so what we're doing now is scaling that Barking Dagenham model to a set of other local authorities in the UK. Because this is one of the big things. By offering this complement to economic measurement, we actually give governments a kind of practical tool to help them make decisions about that trade-off. That actually maybe we need to really focus on this thing that's a social issue that we might have ignored otherwise. Mm. So that's kind of what we what we found then with businesses is that you know we've got a we've got a partnership with Deloitte and Deloitte have been a fantastic partner with us around the world, mm. and that's both in terms of the the relationship with sort of local governments, public sector partners, but also thinking about businesses. So some businesses have a very specific relationship with the geography. So whether that's um, you know we work with Coca Cola on agriculture. We work with Cargill on agriculture. We work with mining companies um, and also starting to work with, yeah, interesting working with retailers as well. Any business that's got a direct relationship to a community, we actually can measure the social progress of that community and say, what's the footprint of my business in the communities that matter? 
And that's something that can help a business, one, to deal with the risks, if the popul- you know, to make sure they have a good relationship with their population, um, to make sure they can tell their story very well, and also to kind of fundamentally support those communities. Can I take you into another little area on that? Because I think it's wonderful, magnificent, and hurrah, hurrah. How do we get this into the media? This is really important. You know, how do we make this the benchmark for success so that when I do wake up and hear the Today programme, they're saying, actually, this business we measured on the SPI did really well. Sales were down by this up, but they're a healthy business. It's done blah, 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 blah. How are we making that happen? And all the business sections, you know, in the FT or the time, how are we getting that in now as a measurement of success? Because... If I'm a business, I want to be on that. And I know there's lots of the B cause and there's the good business stuff, but it still feels like a sort of sideline, you know. And when you read the Sunday Time Riches list, you know, I'd love a little bar that goes down the side, you know, that just has from bastard to brilliant or whatever. Maybe not that language, but I kind of like that. How do we do this? Because we need to get this right out into people thinking this way. I'm, I'm going to buy from that. I'm going to work with that company because... They have a great SPI. Well, and this is the point. You've got to have something that is simple and communicable. So that was one of the things we did with the SPI. We made sure it was very clear that we could aggregate all this data up into a single score. And so we can say, where are you in the ranking? And also, are you going up or down? Because if you look at any kind of meaningful benchmark, whether it's economic growth or unemployment or inflation or the stock market, it's a single number that goes up and down. And that's what we've got to do is create benchmarks. So exactly as you say, we can look at the business, we can look at the community and say, what's it doing to social progress? What direction is it moving in? Now, whether that starts with the the public media campaign, I don't know. I mean, the other the place we're really focusing on is in talking to investors, because I think if investors can much more rigorously benchmark where they're investing based on their social progress contribution, that is going to be a key driver of the behaviour of businesses. Can't we come from both ends, Michael? You know I'm a bit of a marketeer. So I love this because I, I know, and you can see, any investor with any sense is going to be looking at sustainable businesses in the future. But, you know, the, and it might be, well, it's a bit like, the, you know, the, the guy who plants a little seed and uh, you know, doesn't sit under the tree that will, you know, will grow many years from now. I get that. But I also believe we can do so much more with people really understanding who are the businesses that are doing well and doing good and who are the ones who aren't and how we don't buy from them or we don't work with them, quite simply. And it's got to be meaningful. This is the yes. thing. It's like, you know, any fool can come up with a, with a benchmark. But the question is, does the benchmark tell you something important? that's really meaningful Mm. and i think this whole trend towards you know esg investing the environment piece i think we're getting a better handle at least on the carbon issue Mm. but so many ways of measuring the performance of businesses is so spongy on the social side and again often we're measuring the inputs or you know we measure companies based on their corporate philanthropy rather than the real contribution of their business so I think getting a lot more rigorous about this is going to help make this a meaningful conversation. Otherwise, it's just a kind of a superficial benchmark, which we've got to be really kind of rigorous. And that's what we're trying to do with SPI. It's create something that's really rigorous that actually does tell you something meaningful about whether investing here or here has better outcomes. Because you know, lots of us, we're saving in our pensions. Yeah? Yeah, the money we're putting into our pensions is probably being invested in ways that are screwing our planets and screwing our societies. I don't want to screw our planet or our society or my kids' future. 
But what I lack is the way of knowing where to put my money. I've got the guy from the chief exec of Triodos Bank coming on. They, they invest, you know that bank? Yeah. Yeah, they invest in all good stuff around the world. And it was. And I was exactly, I was like, my God, where's my money going? So I did a little shift of it. Not that there's much at the moment, Michael. Not that you're going to feel too sorry for me on that. <laughs> but, <laughs> um, now, I, this might be, Michael, I don't believe this. One of the things, because I'm looking at your SPI um, on nation success um, and that's where you look at, which must be an incredibly big task to try and and, and, and um, assess. But um, for instance, New Zealand scores really highly, doesn't it? And I can't help but thinking, and I'm looking at this, we're talking about even through COVID, which nations have done, of countries have done really well, and a lot of them are being run by women. And um, because I have this feeling and um, it, I wrote about it in Work Like a Woman. And it's more, it's more, it's not just about women. It's about um, what you talked about, even what Aristotle talked about. It's about this kind of alpha, non-alpha way of approaching life. I mean, I think, you know, it, it's not about necessarily being a woman, but it is the, 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 the more feminine traits that we suppressed for so many years that didn't have a place at the business table because they weren't, Caring wasn't that. That went to human resources occasionally, you know. And even that, you know, personnel department wasn't always the most caring. And yet I do feel this energy is one that is a much more caring and more collaborative and more connected. And that is a feminine energy that we have suppressed over the years through business and the world. Would you agree with me on that? Well, certainly it's the case that, you know, the top four performing countries on social progress, you know, Norway, uh, Denmark, Finland um, and New Zealand are all led by women. Um, so we certainly see that. I mean, whether that's a robust statistical finding, probably not. But I'll add to that, though. Maybe also the reason those women are in power is that the men as well within those countries believe in that energy and believe in that. So they're all part of it. So there might be a woman at the top. But the people of that country are part and harness that energy. I think that's why I think also why are these here yeah, the Nordic countries doing so well? I mean, mm. both socially and economically. I think it's partly because yeah, they have made investments in gender equity since the seventies onwards that actually have been good for yeah. equity in society, but also good for the economy because they've yes. unleashed that power. And I know yes. I was talking. I mean, another one of the countries that performs very well on social progress is Iceland. And again, another country that's led by a woman. And I know people in Iceland were telling me that, you know, how you, know, you had the famous women's strike in the 1970s in Iceland that kind of was a big... Wasn't it great? They all stopped working and the husbands had to go out and they ran out of sausages, didn't they, in all the local shops because yeah. the men had to cook. Yeah. <laughs> and they, all they thought was, oh, I can fry a sausage, can't do much else. And, and, and apparently a couple of years ago in Iceland, they passed legislation around um, trying to uh, get equal representation of men and women on boards of companies. And there was some quite fierce resistance from the business organisations. It went through. And then when they started looking at equal pay legislation, the biggest champions were the business organisations because they said we were wrong. Actually, equal representation on boards has been one of the best things that ever happened to us. And therefore, this whole equity agenda is good for business. And I think the thing is like these are not nice to have things. Actually, having equity, having this diversity of values, having these different approaches actually is good for long term success. What we're talking about really here is putting humanity at the centre of everything that we do, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. 
And that's the thing. What is the what's the re- what's the real stuff that matters to us in our lives? And one of the things we've tried to do with Social Progress Index is not just look at the do I have enough food and do are there enough hospital beds, but things like do I have rights? Do I have freedom of choice? You know, do I feel included in society? Because these softer things they often get ignored. And what we've found in our data is that these are actually the most important things for life satisfaction. Uh, so just giving people bread and economic resources is not enough. People actually want to feel free. They want to feel included. That's really important for life satisfaction. And what we've also seen in our data is that countries that tend to do better on those factors have been more resilient to covid So there's actually something about being an open and inclusive society that actually makes you more resilient to deal with shocks. And that's very important going forward. God. Well, you know, I have great hope for the future. I want to ask you this, and I I ask all my guests on this. Do you really think we can achieve this? And where do you think we could be by 2030? I'm I'm very optimistic because I think we can achieve a huge amount if we don't do stupid shit. Um, yeah, that's there's so much, so many easy wins. Yeah, but we've got a lot there. of stupid shithead politicians in, Michael. You know, well, that, that, but that's that's a tactical problem, not a strategic one. <laughs> and, and the and the more stupid shit there is out there, <laughs> actually, it means there's so many more easy things to fix. Uh, that's absolutely true, isn't um, it? And there are so many of the problems in our world are actually solvable. And one of the things we show with Social Progress Index data is how, you know, a country that's got pretty modest economic resources like Costa Rica can achieve a level of social progress that's quite close to America, which is so much richer. Uh, Funny that, whoever's leading America. Exactly. Yeah. And that, I mean, it even predates Trump. So the US has got a chronic problem that yes. it's got. It's not turning its wealth into real quality of life for people. Yes. But what that also tells us if we make the right choices, we can have a dramatic improvement in people's real quality of life very quickly if we just use our resources better and build the right kind of societies. So that's why I'm fundamentally very, very optimistic. I think a lot of these problems are solvable, solvable quickly, and the solutions are out there. Huh? And but if we and I think if we can align ourselves, especially as you know, investors and business around this kind of agenda, we'll see a very very rapid change. Michael, thank you so much. It's been we could talk forever on this. Um, all the luck in the world with it. Let's just keep driving this forward. I think it's well, it's vital. It's the only way that we are going to start to see change happen in the world. That's it for this series, but of course you know that I'll be back soon. Thank you to Crean and Lily for joining me. Thank you to Michael Green today. Thank you to all my guests and thank you to my editor, Megan Lloyd-Davis, and my producer, Matt Hill. Thank you to BT for sponsoring us. Let's keep this growing. Let's keep making the world a better place by doing better. And don't forget, you can still hear from us by subscribing to our newsletter at portersagency.com. Look after yourselves, be safe, be kind, and let's think about how we can create a better world in business. Bye-bye.